Welcome back to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby, the podcast where we discover what skills can help you live your best life. I am your host, Kelly Ryan Bailey, and each week I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful. You'll get a firsthand account of how they develop those skills, as well as their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Now, let's talk about skills, baby. This week, we're joined by Aaron. And Aaron, I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name. So I totally apologize. I just don't want to butcher it. Sure. It's Heizinga. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. So let me do a little brief introduction of Erin. Erin is the co-owner and studio director of Desklight. She designs to help people learn. Believing solutions are best found in true collaboration with the people who will benefit from them, she helps organizational leaders connect learner-centered research insights with design thinking to build new programs and tools. She has partnered with national organizations to design learning programs for public health and diversity initiatives, designed tools for higher education institutions and public schools, and designed a program to empower high school students to build a portfolio of project-based work. Before founding Desklight, Erin worked with firms like IDEO and Gensler on projects with Northwestern Medicine, Motorola, PNC Bank, OfficeMax, Wilson, and Best Buy. She's been a nationally featured speaker at Creative Mornings and the HOW Conference and created curriculum and taught courses at the IIT Institute of Design and Northwestern University. Wow, this is so exciting. And this is just fabulous work that you've been involved in. I'm so excited to learn more about this work at Desolite. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm excited to share and, you know, get into the conversation a little bit. Definitely. Well, before we jump into Desolate, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about how you got into this. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So earlier in my career, I was a graphic designer and then I turned into more of a design strategist, design researcher. But backing up a little further, even from that, I grew up as a dancer and a crafty person. My mom was a painter and interior designer and just kind of grew up around that spirit of being a creative person. And then in undergrad, I studied advertising and art history both together. And that kind of paved the way for this whole career path that I've had around design and making things. And it's so interesting when I hear these stories, I often think through what skills you may have learned throughout that process, which it really sounds like this creativity piece has been a huge influence in your life starting at such a young age. Absolutely. I talk sometimes with people I mentor about how any kind of creative freedom and thoughtfulness that you have in your youth can springboard you into really different kinds of innovative career pathways, especially in the creative field. So I think a lot about how design and the discipline that is required in the field of design was inspired by some of the discipline that I got being a young dancer. Sounds like your mom was obviously really creative as well. Was this something that you just loved on your own or was she really helping you gain that awareness? 
Maybe both, you know, sort of the nature nurture aspect yeah. of everything, right? I, I think I might have ended up being a creative person regardless, just based on my personality mm-hmm. and who I grew up to be individually. But then, yeah, the nature piece, my grandmother, my mom's mom was a professional painter and sold her mm-hmm. oil paintings and watercolors. So when we'd go visit them, I would see her work and be really inspired by the fact that she was able to make her way as a woman and a painter and sell her work. And then I think my mom was inspired by her mom and how that sort of manifested in our house growing up where we would get craft materials and make things just to do it. And the skills associated around like finishing it well and having a vision for what it should be and thinking outside of the box and not being so much of an implementer, but more of a creator. All of those things I think were interesting. And then in parallel to that, my father was a serial entrepreneur. He's very much an analyst. He got his master's degree in statistics. He's very different than my mother. And so I think I have some of that in me too, you know, around leadership and the fact that I have gone the entrepreneurship pathway. So it is fun to reflect on how much your parents or family have influence on where you end up going. It's so true. Now, at what point was it really for you that you took this creative mindset and decided, I'd like to apply this to learning? It took a while, honestly, in terms of understanding and developing those stories that had something to do with learning and design. So for a number of things that were sort of happening in parallel, probably about 10 years ago, where I was working as a consultant. I was teaching at Northwestern University. I had also started a nonprofit organization. So I was getting my feet wet as an entrepreneur at that time. And I was doing a lot. And I was thinking, this might not be sustainable with starting a family and doing this for the next decade. But I had loved it for a while, just kind of experimenting and looking at all these different things. So I came to a point where I thought, well, how can I combine my love for all three of these things? You know, know, being a business owner or at that time, organizational executive director, mm-hmm. how can I combine that with being a instructor, faculty member, teacher, mentor, and my love for that and making my courses really exciting and fun and engaging in a different kind of way than maybe what some of my students had been used to. And then this pathway of always being on the consulting side. So like I said, starting as a young graphic designer and then turning into a bit more of a leader and strategist over time, how could all three of those things combine? So it was a slow, steady pace of looking at what was happening in consulting, in business, combined with this love for education and innovation and learning. Any educational endeavor or experiment or class or course that I've taught and delivered and facilitated, I've made. So starting to really capitalize on and embrace that narrative alongside consulting. And that's really how we arrived at this idea of consulting for learning endeavors and, you know, the vision around making them engaging and equitable and fun. Now, did you always want to be a teacher? Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, I taught the little three-year-olds dance classes because I was, you know, dancing myself. And and I started doing that back in high school. And then in college, I also taught dance. And then I sort of left that whole thing around dance and taking dance classes all the time and fell in love with being a designer. And when I was finished with graduate school, I moved to Chicago and had my first job and was super busy as many young designers are. And I wasn't teaching, but then I had this aha moment. I was like, I really miss teaching. I miss investing in people in this way. So 
I started teaching at Chicago Portfolio School and that was a pivot where I was like, okay, I can apply some of these things that I really enjoy doing with dance to this world of design. And at the time when I was teaching at Chicago Portfolio School, I was pretty much the same age as the people in my class, which was hilarious. You know, I was probably only two or three years older than some of them. Interesting. I was nervous and didn't really have my sea legs under me in terms of teaching design. But I kept teaching there because I loved it. And I've always felt like if you know something and you feel like you know it well enough to give it to someone else, you should be teaching it. And I think that applies to having a family and, you know, coaching or mentoring people as much as it applies to the formality of being a teacher. So, you know, I sort of grew up into it. And then after Chicago Portfolio School, I started teaching at Columbia and then ultimately Northwestern NID. I see it less of a title around teaching or being a full-time teacher, which I don't think I would ever want to do for a number of reasons, but Mm -hmm. I love investing in people and connecting people and building communities. So I think teaching is a, a pathway into that conversation. You really put so much lovely effort into how you design this work for your students and you're really engaging and passionate about it, that they must have these moments where they're like, wow, this person really changed the way I'm seeing my life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so neat to hear those stories. And a few of my students have put things like that on LinkedIn, like as feedback <laughs> and things. And I love hearing those. And sometimes you don't know for a decade, like I've had some sure. students that I had at Columbia seriously 10 years ago, email me randomly and say, Hey, I just, I just thought of you. Cause I applied this thing we talked about 10 years ago in this client meeting I just had. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know, that's fun. And I love the moments in class too, where people have those aha moments for the first time and they, something sort of clicks and there's this light bulb moment. I live for those moments when people are like, Oh, I finally see it. I get it. And yeah. that's, that's the why right there. Totally. And not to divulge your secret sauce for what you do with desk life, but I'm curious if there's something that you find to be like the most important aspect to bring in to an environment like that to sort of make those moments happen for students. Yeah, I think there's two big, big tenets to the work. I think the first one is truly being a a human-centered design leader, you know, and running any kind of project or new program or service or experience online through that grid of knowing who you're serving, knowing who the learner is and designing for them. Because if it's being designed in a vacuum and you're sort of throwing that instructional design or curriculum or program over the fence, so to speak, then it's never going to be that enjoyable. And they're never going to really, really feel what you're trying to do or, you know, what you're trying to teach them. I think that's the first big bucket is just knowing who it is and then working with them, you know, to design it. And then the other thing that I think often goes overlooked, and it's such a simple idea, is just this idea of fun. Learning should be fun. It shouldn't feel like a task. It shouldn't feel like something you have to do in order to keep your job or to stay in school. So how do you design for fun? You know, you think about projects, you think about how you can connect with the people in your cohort, whether that's offline or online. You think about how does this apply to life for these people in this learning environment? How can you make it really sticky because it actually is relevant to them at the moment that they're learning it, you know, and that's all fun if it's done right. Yeah, completely. When you think about that from a life perspective, this is something that they can apply to their life. I'll bring it back to skills for a minute, especially in the courses that you teach. What do you think are sort of these most 
transferable assets that you're bringing to these students. I call them skills. Some people might not call them skills, but really they're sort of like these life skills that could be transferable into multiple different areas. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that. With the classes that I've taught, so much of it is about design in all of its flavors and forms and fashions and all of that. And to decode that more, I think the actual skills are things like, how do you talk to strangers? How do you learn from them? How do you interview them well in a way that they're going to give you real meaningful feedback that you can learn from? What makes a good design? It's something that lands well with the hearts and minds of the people that you're making something for. So that applies to business just as much as it applies to being a tried and true designer. However, people think about that, whether it's an architect or an industrial designer, graphic designer. It matters in business too. Just this idea that you really have to listen well and you have to volumize your content and your voice and your general sort of stature about how you're delivering something in a meeting. That's all design in my opinion. So many of these classes that I've taught are for traditional designers and for future business leaders to teach Mm -hmm. them about some of these skills that are really innately baked in to human-centered design. Right, exactly. And I love that aspect. So now I am curious then how you took this next step from what you were seeing in this teaching environment and knowing the reasoning behind why you wanted to create a business, maybe those aspects that you've learned and how you're trying to transform this at scale. Yeah, I think, you know, from teaching for quite some time and from my partner teaching different kinds of audiences over time and from seeing the world of instructional design and how that's typically gone the last, I'd say, 50 years or so. Yeah, there's a need. There's definitely a need. And so for us, thinking about the mission and vision of Desklight, it's really to work with learners across the lifelong learning spectrum. We don't just work in K-12. We don't just work in higher ed. We don't just work in learning and development and training. Like we like to work across the entirety of lifelong learning and kind of close down those silos a little bit because we can cross pollinate then, you know, as a office that's working with all of these diversity of kinds of problems and clients to solve for them. Something that we're thinking about as an insight for early learning could easily be a very cool, yes. thoughtful thing that we can bring to a learning and development project because there's a lot of truth and similarity about how people learn as humans over the course of time as they age. Some of it's quite universal and that's really neat to talk about and think about with people across all of those kinds of conversations and relationships. So that's something that has come from the work and knowing we really want to continue to align with folks in all of these different categories as long as it's a learning endeavor and something that is big and seems like there's a ripe chance for innovation there. Like, cool, let's do it. Let's talk a little bit more about it. So what is one thing that you've taken from one different area of the lifelong learning aspect and brought to another? Yeah. So we were working with Techstars in Boulder, Colorado, a couple of years ago. And the scope on that project was to build a learning hub, a toolkit for the entrepreneurs in their accelerator programs across the globe. So we were able to think about by talking with these founders in the programs, how should we deliver this 
engaging, fun content. And the business objective was so that it's scalable and efficient. And they would know that the Techstars curriculum is being offered at the same degree of rigor and the same kinds of curriculum was being offered to all of these folks in their accelerator programs. So all of that said, the way we designed the topics was for people to go in where they felt comfortable and where they felt like they needed that learning. Mm -hmm. If you're working on financial modeling, one day you can access that and not feel like you have to graduate from the three topics before that in order to get into that financial modeling content. So we, by design, didn't design the curriculum to be linear. We wanted to break down that sort of notion that you had to get badged or graduate from one unit to get to the next unit or topic. Right. So we brought that notion to a project that we were doing in K-12. And we said, you know, high schoolers kind of want to learn this way too. Nobody wants to feel like you're being forced through this content. How can we make it a little bit more open source and give them the choice Montessori style, right? To like kind of go in and pick and choose what skill or topic they wanted to embrace on that particular day. And as long as they get through it all at a certain amount of time, then cool, no problem. Did you get feedback from students that was just like, wow? The Montessori philosophy is something that this is a little bit of a a soapbox for me, but I think that that philosophy of open learning and choose your own adventure is very strong. And my hope is that through some of our K-12 work, we can bring some of that thinking and Mm -hmm. style of learning into the classrooms in public school districts too, and even independent schools that maybe haven't thought that way in the past. So yes, absolutely. The students loved it. The teachers loved it because in some ways it redesigns the teacher's day as well and creates some efficiencies there that at face value, people don't really realize necessarily is the case. Yeah. And with the Techstars work, you know, just this idea of designing a curriculum that's this way, it was written up in the Wall Street Journal. They celebrated it as part wow. of their call to action of give first, which is the tagline for Techstars. It certainly was in that category of being learner-centered, following the lead of what the learners really wanted as founders of their own businesses. Like they don't want to be told what to learn when they want the freedom to yeah. get the information they need at the right time. Yeah. It's fascinating that you say this because we were chatting about this prior to hitting record, you know, what's going on at home with my daughter right now that has, again, what is coined a learning disability, but I don't call it that. I call it her gift. But the interesting thing being that as soon as she was given the ability to have control, which she didn't have in the school environment, COVID and going virtual has given her this level of independence in terms of her learning. She was sad every single day for the last almost five years of going to school. And all of a sudden, within weeks, she was so happy. And even to this day, which we're still doing virtual school, just to see the difference in how she approaches this, like they're using Google Classroom for this. So everything's not perfect by any means, but she has control of when she does what and how she does it and which things she wants to choose, which I think is just to see that in a child that was struggling so much is just fabulous. Yeah, I love that. Young people deserve a lot more autonomy than we give them credit for or that we give them. You know, they, oh, they, so much. Absolutely. They can figure it out on their own. It's just us grown-ups that often <laughs> given so many constraints as, you know, teachers in classrooms or in systems in general that are designed to constrain and not create a box that they can play in or even like a framework that provides for that freedom. So Absolutely. I love that. And that is an upside to everything that we're challenged by with the season we're in because of COVID. 
It's true. Are you seeing a shift in your business as well as the changes with COVID that have happened? Yeah, definitely. With higher ed, we're working with two different schools right now. And we're at either end of the user journey, so to speak, with them. And both, I think, are related to the times that we're in at the moment. The first school is about designing a digital experience for recruiting because people aren't going to be spending the time or resource to come and see what graduate school they would want to go to in person. So that's the scope of one project. The second one on the other side is building a better, more effective value proposition for alumni of this business school. So not only do they get this great experience and this great learning from being in the graduate school itself, but the school is also now thinking about what's our value proposition above and beyond other business schools. Well, we could offer them more support and more learning after they graduate as well. So Mm -hmm. that's an example. And I think that perhaps the school has definitely been thinking about that for the last few years, but now is a catalyst moment to say, oh, we have to do this now, you know? Those are just a couple of examples that I think have been extraordinary and really, really great for us to work on and partner on in this spirit of, you know, we we want to equip higher ed schools to be able to continue what they've been doing in this new economy that we're in. Yeah. I wonder too, if you have, you know, some sort of like interesting things that you've been thinking about that man, if you could just get that out to more schools. Mm, Gosh, so many things. That's such a great (laughs) question. Yeah, definitely. With K-12 schools, more need for problem-based learning and project-based learning. Mm -hmm. The skills that come from project-based learning and the confidence and the self-actualization and the relevancy of the learning and how students will ultimately remember those things better and more effectively than they would have if they learned it from a textbook or even from their teacher Mm -hmm. lecturing at them. So those are the two things that certainly rise to the top in my mind for K-12. I think for higher ed, there's just so much changing and happening. I mean, we could talk about that for three hours, I'm sure, but just new ways, hybrid models, skill-based models, specialty models, whether they're for-profit or nonprofit, which is a very provocative conversation right now, but a needed one to be having. Just the redesign, the innovation that can happen in terms of what makes the most sense for each individual And what do they want? Do they want the college experience or do they want the skills? Do they know themselves well enough in what they want to do when they leave high school to fast forward into some direction that they are that confident in? And we need to have different kinds of pathways for different kinds of learners earlier on. And, you know, also this idea that there's a lot of new higher ed partnership models that are happening around financial aid. And not requiring certain core courses to be taken again, if a high schooler already has some of those credits or that knowledge even or AP, things Mm -hmm. like that. And then on the, you know, learning and development front, I think what we're seeing with those clients is that traditionally, historically, learning has been for the sake of some kind of objective that's part of the employee's job description. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really changing where businesses, employers, big organizations are starting to think more about how can we embrace and enrich this individual as a human and what they want to do with their lives and with their work. And how can we think about this more as a employee benefit and less of a thing that's about us as a business or organization. So there's really neat, beautiful, innovative conversations that are happening on that front. I completely agree. And I realize this will start small, but that concept going back to this whole like employer aspect of 
let's look at what you might have aspirations around as opposed to what's going to work for us, which I think is just a really interesting twist because I think if more people thought about their life, like you just described, wherein, you know, man, I wish that I could do whatever dream that you might have that most adults might say, well, no, you need to pay the bills. You need to do that. You can't have these dreams. But what if the world really had this slight shift towards dream big and go after that? And I know this sounds a little foofy, but we do really have the ability here to take people in general and raise the bar of how we think about life. Absolutely. This is something that's also been kind of neat that's happened with COVID. Like, we all know friends that have done these really interesting, unexpected career pivots, or they're doing yeah. some hobby that you're like, really? But that's the beautiful thing right now. There's almost more social permission now that people aren't as surprised and they're more socially accepting of those experiments and things that people are trying. And I love that. Hopefully this is the beginning of just being more accepting and encouraging of each other as friends and networks to, yeah, go for that. Do that. Try that. I hope so too. That would be such a better way to live. That's lovely. So now, I mean, I know you have a son, so tell me now, like you have all these thoughts. How would you approach education with your own child? Yeah, it's interesting you asked that question. He has asked us many times, do I have to go to college? And he's 10. He's 10 years old right now. I think he asked the question for the first time when he was about eight. And that is such a big question for parents. And I think traditionally, what the data tells us, of course, is that people that have gone to college are going to really encourage their students, their kids to go to college or to go to the best college they can or force their child to go to some college that they want them to go to. And, you know, I I think that that entire narrative is breaking more and more every single day. And what we told Knox is you don't have to go to college, but our responsibility as your parents is to help you figure out what you might want to enjoy doing. How will you enjoy the days before you as a grown up when you are more autonomous and you know can live your own life and we've equipped you with those life skills that you need to survive yes. and flourish. We will help you as your loving parents slash mentors to figure out what path is best for you. And he's 10 and we've got, depending on how you look at it, eight to 10 more years as we start to figure out what that might look like. And I'm encouraged that there are going to be thousands more options that we could send him to than there are at this very moment. We tell him, you don't have to abide by these traditional systems and structures that we have known to be true as your parents and right. we work hard not to put those barriers up on him as a generational expectation and hope for the best beyond that, you know, hope that every day we're sharing things with him and telling him about new things that we're seeing through our work and conversations that we're having that might inspire him. I love that. And I had a feeling you might answer it that way. So. <laughs> You keep nodding like, yep, I knew you were going to say it that way. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, well, it's, it's similar. I mean, we have so many similarities in that respect, and it's a similar way that I would answer with mine too. And I laugh because the, the funny thing was that I would say this about sort of like the next step of life after high school, but up until COVID and this whole experience with going virtual, I hadn't really thought that we could navigate a K through 12 experience differently 
than what was sort of the standard. This is a lot for me to say because I, I don't know why I didn't think that way. It was just a moment that I needed to have to see that it could be sustainable in another way. But again, I have three children with three totally different personalities and likely three totally different paths. I say to them, it's completely their choice as long as they have the correct funding. (laughs) And that's something that I like, I just had to pay my way through school. So that's just a big thing for me because I think there's like an onus on what you do and the choices you make in your life when you're the one paying through that. So if you want to go to an Ivy League school, that is fabulous. And you know, you can figure that out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think also with that, there's definitely a need for Ivy League schools. You know, there's a need for all kinds of schools and it really is driven by the learner. Like you're saying, you know, there's going to be opportunities for students that are more and more self-directed. And hopefully we're having those conversations around the sacrifice around the finances, just as much as the sacrifices around, if you do go this direction, you're choosing this path, you're not choosing these other paths. Do you realize that? That's a big conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I do, I feel so fortunate that we can think these things and even kind of like navigate our life in this way, right? I feel like I would be remiss not to say that I realize not everyone is in the same situation as that. But ideally, the thing is that I think for everyone to be able to figure out what fits in their life, wherever they're at, that to me is why I get so excited about these changes that are happening in education and in work, because I think this will broaden the abilities for more people to find success, wherein before there was only one way. And that I felt was extremely limiting. Even though there were a lot more than one way, most people only knew of one way. (laughs) Yeah. And as we start to have more options, it's going to be interesting to see how the business and organizational models change around quality and cost. And ultimately how that leads to more equity in certain circumstances. That's another reason why I think it's exciting to have a bit more competition in terms of systems and strategies that are in place for people to choose. Exactly. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time, Erin. So I'd like to just leave with one sort of open-ended question. What are the last parting words that you'd like to leave with our audience today? Oh my goodness. I think just based on our conversation, the idea that learning can be lifelong and embracing the fact that it's a beautiful thing and it's an offering and it's really, yes, a competitive advantage these days as we have people that are more and more entrepreneurial and more exploratory with their own professional pathways as well as personal pathways, but embracing this idea that learning is a gift and it can be fun. It can be exciting. It can be so much more engaging and it would be fun to continue that conversation just on that notion that it's a gift and it's something that's free for us in some ways to embrace those notions and learnings through books and movies and going to the library and having these kinds of conversations with each other to learn from each other. Yeah, it's an exciting new learning frontier that we're about to embark on. I completely agree. I'm a huge fan of the library, by the way. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) What a great resource. Well, thank you so much for those parting words. And thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to let everyone know where they can find Erin. She's available on LinkedIn at Erin, H-U-I-Z-E-N-G-A. I'm going to go ahead and when I post this on social media, make sure that she's tagged. Or you can follow Desklight at desklightlearning.com. And it's also available on LinkedIn and Instagram at Desklight Learning. 
So I want to thank you all for listening in to Let's Talk About Skills Baby. I would love to hear some feedback. So please leave a rating, review, shoot me a note. would love to hear it. Thanks again, Erin, for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Skills Baby, a Growth Network podcast production. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your community. Ratings, reviews, and suggestions are great sources of feedback and always appreciated. And please reach out and connect with me on social at Kelly Ryan Bailey. I'd love to meet you and continue the conversation. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So until then, keep growing your skills and have a great day.